Today we look to the book of the Psalms, Psalm 78, which is a very lengthy psalm. We're only going to read uh, selected verses from this psalm, or I'll read them for us, enough to give you a feel for the context of what's happening. And as our first reading indicated and teaches us, this was written down uh, for our instruction. So I'll read uh, verses 9 through 11. And then 17 through 25. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to His law. They forgot His works and the wonders that He had shown them. Yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread or provide meat for His people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, He was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust His saving power. Yet He commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. I don't know if you know the name Viktor Frankl or not. He was an Austrian psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor. And from that experience, uh, he had this to say. Everything can be taken from a man except one thing. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Now with that in mind, have you ever thought about how those people of faith should be tremendous optimists? I'll give you one example from Christian history. In the 19th century, the great missionary pioneer Adoniram Judson was in a terrible jail in Burma with 32 pounds of chains around his ankles. And a fellow prisoner with a sneer on his face said, Well, Dr. Judson, what about the prospect of the conversion of the heathen now? And Judson's instant reply was, the prospects are just as bright as the promises of God. You know, as we read through the scriptures, we can see all types of people who either do have faith or they don't have faith in God. Either their God is a big God... Or he's a tiny God who's not able to do anything. 
For example, we have the Ephraimites singled out in our text this morning as a group who were speaking against God, saying, can God spread a table in the desert? Sounds very modern, doesn't it? Speaking against God, saying, in essence, what has He done for me lately? Yes, He did some things a long time ago, but what is He doing now? What will he do in the future? These Ephraimites, they wanted food to eat. And the God who had performed all of these other miracles, liberating them from the land of Egypt, in their minds couldn't pull it off. It's one thing that he made water gush from a rock But he's not going to be able to feed hundreds of thousands of people in the desert of all places. And you know, if we listen carefully, that may sound a little bit like us at times. It makes no difference in which generation we find ourselves. We're still complaining oftentimes about the state of the world in which we live. We too claim we live in a a wilderness, a chaos of crime and pain, hopelessness and despair where people simply don't care anymore. We join with the Ephraimites and we say to God, can you do anything about these terrible times in which we live? Can you provide us with the hope, the peace, the grace that we need to persevere day in and day out? The psalmist assures us that God is able to spread a table in the wilderness. Of course, He did historically for those complaining Ephraimites, for we're told he gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He, he rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Men ate the bread of angels. Now the notes in my study Bible say that the manna is fancifully interpreted as the bread of angels. And that's just another way of saying that... Uh, Asaph, the writer of this psalm, sort of took poetic license, we might say. If you look up the word manna in a good Bible dictionary, you'll get two basic explanations of it. Nobody, I don't think, is really sure what it exactly was. One is that it's believed to be the white honey-like substance that comes from tamarisk trees that are found all over the deserts of the Middle East. And the other theory is that it's excretions of two uh, closely related species of insects who undoubtedly inhabit those tamarisk trees all over the deserts of the Middle East. And regardless of which one of these two theories or any other theory we choose to believe, it may seem a bit much to you and me to call manna the bread of angels. Or is it? You see, the psalmist was a man of faith. 
and the fact that God had provided anything to sustain His people in the desert was the only excuse He needed to lift up praise to His God. In His mind, God had indeed spread a table in the wilderness And what that means is that what you and I see in any given situation depends on where we are with God. A cynic might say it was only a sugary substance from a desert shrub where the believer says it was the bread of angels. It was a wonderful table spread in the desert. And I'm not suggesting that to be people of faith, we have to somehow leave our intellects behind and lock them away. Because Scripture doesn't teach that. And that's not what I'm teaching in this sermon. Personally, I believe it's very possible that manna was one of those two theories espoused in the Bible dictionary. But that doesn't keep me recognizing with the psalmist, that it was also an act of God. Not simply some event of nature. Faith allows us, as someone has said, to see both viewpoints and espouse both viewpoints. Faith lets us see things that other people aren't able to see. give you a better idea of what I'm trying to communicate, I see the uh, same thing at work when Sarah and I left this congregation the first time back in 1986. I had been your associate pastor right out of seminary from 82 to 86, and I had been called uh, to serve the Linden Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church in Gastonia in the summer of 86, and we had lived in an apartment off of Herlong Avenue the whole time we were here, those four years. But Sarah was eight months pregnant with Jamie at the time. And her nesting instinct was really taken over. And she wanted us to have a house, and we were looking for a house. We had about two months before we were going to move, and uh, she couldn't really go and ride all day on a Saturday, so it was my dad and I who would meet in Gastonia and look all day on Saturdays uh, for a house. Now, you got to remember, this is in old school days. There wasn't any Internet, and you just had to get a, a real estate uh, broker and just ride around with them through neighborhoods and, and see if you liked something or not. And Saturday after Saturday after Saturday went, and we weren't able to find anything. If we liked it, we couldn't afford it. If we could afford it, you didn't want to live there. (laughs) I mean, that's just the way it was. And finally, it had come down to two weeks until we were supposed to move. And you're looking at me thinking, what a fool. You mean you waited that long? Well, we just couldn't find anything. And on that particular Saturday, we found a house that we both liked, talking about my dad and I, but it was too expensive. And so I made this ridiculously low offer and put a lot of stipulations on it, like you got to be out in two weeks and you got to leave the curtains and all this kind of stuff. And within two hours... 
They accepted our offer. Now the real estate broker with me, he was a member of the church where we were going. He said, well, they just wanted to get rid of the house. That's one way to look at it. But Sarah and I always looked at those circumstances as God's way of confirming that that was the house that we were supposed to have. I have found in my experience that God does not mind making us wait. Do you know why? Because it makes us depend on Him. And I think the longer the time went, the more, uh, shall we say, uh, serious were the prayers about that house. And if we couldn't see God at work in all of that, He just kind of put an exclamation point on it. That new address was 2627 Providence Drive. I tell you no lie. You see, the person of faith is able to see God at work in everyday affairs. But even though we may realize that, even though we may believe that, we're not always willing to talk about it, are we? The world does that to us. We're sometimes hesitant to speak about the fact that God was in this or that event that took place in our lives. And then sometimes we're not even aware of God being active in something that just took place because it's like we have blinders. We're not really looking We're not paying attention. We're not tuned in to the Holy Spirit and what He's doing in our lives and in our world around us. You see, faith insists that we be aware of God. That we see the relationship between everyday things and the hand of God and that we live with gratitude for His work in our midst. But do we do that? Or are we tuned into that type of life? I, I heard one preacher talk about it in terms of, of going on a God hunt. You know, and his point was, that's something we ought to be doing every day. We just ought to look for God in this or in that. Are we living with that kind of attitude? I think many times, many of us are not. Rather, we're closer to what Colin Wilson describes in his book about C.G. Young when he talks about the robot function. The robot function is something that we all have and helps us to perform all sorts of complicated tasks without really thinking about it. Now, you may be thinking, what are you talking about, Barry? I'm talking about the time that you drove to the store or to the gas station And all of a sudden you were there and you thought, I don't remember just driving these last mile or two. Has that ever happened to you? It happens to me sometimes. You know, where was my mind? My mind was thinking about something else. And the robot function took over and and had me stay in my lane and, you know, apply the brakes when I needed to and all that sort of thing. Well, in much the same way, we become spiritual robots 
at times. We're not paying attention. We're not seeing what we need to see. John Killinger made the point in an article I read one time that our psalmist was no robot. He was able to see the hand of God in the miracle that sustained his forefathers and his foremothers in the wilderness. And he wished to celebrate in his own day the power of God. Now that was possible for him. We see it in the text. But is it possible for you and me? To not only see God in the past, to not only believe that we'll see Him in the future, but to actually see Him empowering us for living right now, today, and tomorrow, and Tuesday, and so forth. So that we're able to mount up with wings as eagles. To run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. Faith gives a yes to that kind of question. Yes. We can see God at work. Doubt says, I don't know, I'm not so sure. So we see that in a way our coming to worship or our not coming to worship sifts us. It makes us declare our belief to a whole world of unbelief out there when we walk through the doors every Lord's day. It answers the question of whether we choose to follow or not. And maybe that's why we call this table of the Lord the Lord's sacrament. You know, that word sacrament is Latin. It originally meant an oath. And with that meaning in mind, that means that when we take the bread and cup, we swear an oath to God and to Jesus witnessed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We bind ourselves once more to God and to God's people all at the same time. We're saying that, yes, I believe that God can spread a table in the wilderness of my life, whatever that happens to be. And this table is an evidence of that faith. I've never been there, but I've read that in the church of St. Clement Danes in London, which I understand is now basically a, an honorary chapel for the RAF, there's a wooden cross about six inches high. And a nearby note explains that this cross was carved uh, by a prisoner of war in a Japanese prisoner of war camp from 1942 uh, until he was liberated in 1945. And his cross, as imperfect as it was, became the focal point of every religious service, every kind of funeral that the men had in that POW camp. The cross was a symbol. It said, even here, cut off from loved ones and country with little to eat and with sickness and suffering abundant, even here in this POW camp, this cross says that we have faith and hope in God. 
And later when the men were released and allowed to go home, someone wrapped up that cross and brought it back and gave it to that chapel in London. And in that church it stands there as a reminder. Just as it used to stand in the POW camp, a reminder that God is able to spread a table in the wilderness. Maybe it isn't a fancy table. It's not always a lavish table. In the instance of those prisoners, it was in fact very meager. But it's faith's table. Because it points us toward the faith that is ours to claim in Jesus Christ and God's love for you and me and that He sent His only begotten Son into this world to die on the cross for our sins and for the sins of the world. And so you see, because it's faith's table... Ultimately, it's the richest table in the world. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.